Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Sergei Radchenko, the Wilson E. Schmidt Distinguished Professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. They discuss China's quickly evolving relationship with Russia. Well, hello and welcome to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and I'm joined, as always, by Mike Green, Kissinger Chair in Strategy at CSIS and the CEO of the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Our topic today is Russia-China relations, and we could not have picked a better guest. Joining us is Sergei Rychenko, the Wilson E. Schmidt Distinguished Professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, or SICE, as it's more commonly known. Sergei is one of the foremost historians of the Cold War and China-Russia relations, having written pioneering works on the Sino-Soviet split, on the strategic implications of the atomic bomb, and a forthcoming book, which I'm very much looking forward to coming out later in early 2024 on uh, Soviet grand strategy and Soviet decision-making. So we're really delighted to welcome you, Sergey. Thanks for joining us on the Asia Chessboard. Thank you for inviting me, Jude. Really, really happy to be here. So as always, start off with a biographical question. Curious where you grew up, what were some of your early intellectual interests? And I think most importantly, what set you on this career path of a academic interest in the Cold War and China-Russia relations? Well, Jude, I have a very unusual biography. It's rare for someone from Sakhalin Island, this is where I grew up, to uh, end up as a professor at SAIS. And you know, this, this was a long and, and difficult road and full of excitement. Uh, that took uh, 25 years, and uh, on the way, I was in places like China for years, and Mongolia for years, and I lived in the UK for years, and I I was an exchange student in Texas as a as a youngster. You know, it all sort of began with uh, me benefiting from uh, a scholarship program sponsored by the U.S. government when I was 15. I left Sakhalin Island and uh, went to the to the United States, and then from then just moved on and on and on and did various things. But because I was originally from the Russian Far East, I think I was always interested in that area geographically. And of course, I also lived in China for a period of time and became interested not only just in the Cold War, which obviously impacted this region greatly, but also in the Sino-Russian relationship, something I grew up with. And and I witnessed uh, both the period of confrontation in the early years of my life between China and Russia, but also a period of blossoming that we have seen since then. So that's, that's the short story. When were you in China? So I was in China. I originally, I came there as an exchange student, but not from Russia, but from the United States. Okay, this becomes very complicated. I was a Russian exchange student in the United States. And then I was a student in Texas for a couple of years at a university in Texas. And then I became an American student going to Hong Kong as an American exchange student from 
Texas going to Hong Kong, and I spent a year in Hong Kong just as it was going through the transition. It was back when the transition was happening to the Chinese, which really spurred my interest in in China. And I also, this is when I really started learning Chinese because growing up in Sakhalin, you're close to Japan there. Obviously, Japan is around the corner, but you know nobody really had any idea at that time about learning Japanese, never mind Chinese. And then by living in Hong Kong, I became interested in that. And then I did a PhD at the London School of Economics, where which was actually on the subject of Sino-Russian relations. And eventually, I went to China and lived there for five years, working at the University of Nottingham in Nimbo. What years was that, Sergey? This was just at the end of Hu Jintao and overlapping with the beginning of Xi Jinping era. And after that, I, you know, I moved on to, uh, to something else. <laughs> just when it was getting interesting. It was getting too interesting for me. I mean, frankly, I was getting death threats at one point. So uh, <laughs> it was getting way too interesting. There's a lot to get into today. And, and Mike and I want to sort of really pick your brain on the, the 360 of Russia, China, but also I know we want to ask about some of Russia's other peripheral relations. I thought it might be helpful to first just ask you a, a level set question, which is the relationship between Moscow and Beijing defies easy categorization, having gone through these, first of all, co- or conjoined development. You can't talk about the Communist Party in China without talking about the influence of the Soviet Union or the Soviet Come leadership. Years, absolutely, yeah. You can't talk about the early development in the 1950s and the industrialization of the PRC without talking about Soviet Union. The two sides had a, their own Cold War amidst the Cold War. And then, as you mentioned earlier, this sort of blossoming that happened beginning in the late 80s or early 1990s. I, just taking stock of the relationship today in 2023, how would you describe this relationship? How would you describe it at a strategic level? And then what are some of the aspects, uh, you know, the sub-strategic aspects of the relationship that you think are most salient? Well, I think it's fair to describe this as a, as a very close alignment. And they use the word alignment deliberately in order to avoid using the word alliance, because, of course, it is not an alliance. And I would stress that most emphatically, it is not a military alliance. But it is clear that China and Russia have a considerable overlap in their global agendas. And that first and foremost means a joint opposition to what the Chinese term the United States or American hegemony. The Russians very much sign on to this proposition of the need to oppose the United States and promote the so-called uh, multipolar world order. And I think there, their global interests overlap, but not to the extent to where they're actually locked in such a tight embrace as they were back in the 1950s when they were actually military allies. Now, that was a very different creature, that alliance. Now, today, I think Russia and China reserve areas of disagreement and neither Beijing nor Moscow pressure the other necessarily in areas where their interests diverge. And that I think is very different. And that I think makes the alignment of today more resilient because there are fewer frictions between the two. This alignment, what is the timeline for you of when this strategic alignment began? And I guess as a, as a related question, is it a shared concern of risks that is driving this? Or is there more a positive side of the agenda that is driving the alignment? 
As far as the beginning of it, I have a strange answer to this. I think if you were really looking for the beginning of the current situation, did not begin with Putin and Xi Jinping. A lot of people assume that this is kind of a new thing. Well, not at all. In fact, China and Russia, who or China and the Soviet Union, which were enemies in the 1970s, started to come closer together in the early 1980s. Part of the reason that was specifically for it was for geopolitical reasons, because at that time uh, Moscow felt isolated on the international stage because of their own foreign policy, including invasion of Afghanistan and the threat of intervention in Poland, which brought about Western sanctions and pressure on the Soviet Union. And so the Soviet leaders were thinking, well, you know, we're so lonely in the international stage. How about we try to break through to the Chinese and see if we can you know, develop our relationship with them in order to avoid that sort of isolation. So 1982-83 is when it happened. And the Chinese, I think, were also under Deng Xiaoping realizing that one-sided alignment or one-sided reliance on the United States, which had been pursued since the early 1970s, was not in their interest. And they also began to reciprocate Soviet moves. And then, of course, that that led to Gorbachev's eventual visit to Beijing in May 1989, which, as Deng Xiaoping put it at the time, closed the past and opened the future. And I think uh, the future was very much affected by geopolitical considerations, in particular by this idea that, that China and Russia could increase each other's uh, could increase their leverage vis-a-vis the United States by uh, developing a closer partnership with one another. So that is the geopolitical underpinning of the relationship, which is very much still there. It's very much, of course, it has developed greatly since Putin and Xi Jinping have become leaders. But there are other aspects of this relationship, not least the economic aspect, and maybe we can talk about that later. You know, you mentioned that many date the strategic alignment to Putin and Xi, and interesting to hear you date it much earlier. I wonder if we could just probe for a minute your assessment of uh, how this relationship between Putin and Xi elevates or, or brings the relationship to a new strategic plane. And I wonder if I could ease into that question by asking for a, your assessment of a moment caught on video when she met with Putin earlier this summer, which I found fascinating. When they're walking out of a dinner and Xi Jinping's about to get into his car, he, he turns and says to Putin, you know, right now there are changes, the likes of which we haven't seen in 100 years, and we are the ones driving these changes together. Driving it forward. This was during Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow. Correct. Uh, that's right. That's right. Um, well, obviously, the personal element matters a great deal. I, I think it, 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 it does. It always did for Sino-Soviet and Sino-Russian relations. People, personalities like Mao Zedong, for example, or Deng Xiaoping or Xi Jinping obviously have a huge impact on the course of the relationship. One of the reasons for the Sino-Soviet confrontation back in the the late 50s and in the 60s was Mao Zedong's preoccupation with what he felt his role of this, you know, junior partner. He didn't want to put up with this. He felt humiliated by this. He wanted to push back against this. This is very much a personal thing, right? You look at people like Xi Jinping and Putin, you know, they are obviously, you know, they, they, I wouldn't call them friends, but they respect each other. They meant multiple, multiple times with one another. And I think having people like that at the helm uh, helps kind of drive this relationship forward. I think that is very important, the personalistic element. So, Sergey, there is occasional 
debate in Washington and Tokyo in Europe about whether it's possible to have a wedge strategy between Moscow and Beijing to sort of play the China card against Russia if you're in Europe or play the Russia card against China if you're in Tokyo or Washington. Sometimes it strikes me as fantasy. The Japanese had this idea under Abe that maybe the Northern Territories issue could be solved and the China card or the Russia card played against China. You sometimes hear in the Republican sort of MAGA right the idea, well, we need to be friendly with Putin so we can deal with the Chinese. I want to dive into this a little bit with you, looking at history and the weak points in this alignment between Moscow and Beijing. But just broadly speaking, are these wedge strategies a fantasy right now, or are there actually weaknesses to be exploited if you're NATO or the US or Japan? They're huge fantasies. And to demonstrate why they're fantasies, we'd have to come back to the late 1960s and, and understand what Kissinger and Nixon were doing at that time in the early 70s with the Sino-American rapprochement. In the late 1960s, Moscow and Beijing were at each other's throats. They were on the verge of an actual war. And in fact, they fought an actual war in 1969 at Jambaldao and then also on the western section of their frontier. There were border skirmishes and and Moscow threatened nuclear strike, nuclear strike, a preemptive strike against China. So it did not take great strategic genius to realize that these two countries were bitter enemies and and exploit that. No, it took political foresight and bravery, but it was obvious that this was a problem that could be actually exploited in the interests of the United States. So when Kissinger went to China on his secret visit in July 1971, he was welcomed with open arms for the reason that China needed America in order to oppose what they thought was a much worse enemy, and that is the Soviet Union. Of course, the Soviets, when they heard that Nixon was coming to China, they got very anxious and and had Nixon over in Moscow in, in, in May 1972. That was a situation that was so exploitable by the United States, it was asking to be exploited. But today, when we hear these conversations about, oh, you know, let us, um, sometimes you hear that on the Republican right. Well, I hate, I hate to single anybody out, but maybe I should because he does that in his presidential campaign by Vivek Ramazwani talks about that. He says, well, you know, we I will make Russia exit the military alliance with China. That's actually an actual quote. Obviously, Russia and China don't have a military alliance. So in this regard, at least he doesn't know what he's talking about. But the interesting thing for me here is that the situation is very, very different today. I mean, these two countries are very, very close. And yes, there are problems in their relationship. I don't want to say that the relationship is completely problem-free. There are frictions of various kinds. And also, yes, the Russians want to be courted by the West. They want to be courted by Washington. Why is that? Because they're not happy with their overlines on China and they want leverage. So if the West courts Russia now and says, okay, we want to pull you away, we want to drive a wedge or we want to pull you away from China and we'll give you incentives, the Russians will pocket the incentives Uh, They will be very happy to pocket those incentives, but it is not in their interest to actually spoil their relationship with China. And I don't even think the problem here is Putin. I mean, if Putin was run over by bus tomorrow and somebody else came to power who was actually more reasonable, I would say it's actually in Russia's interest to maintain a close, positive relationship with China and maybe, you know, to a certain extent, play China against the United States. I mean, they're not able to do that now because Putin's preoccupation and his fixation on his you know, various imperialist projects in Europe. But so, yeah, the potential for the United States to get in there and play Russia against China is not only minimal, but in fact, it would be welcomed with open arms by the Russians who then will use that in order to improve their leverage with the Chinese. 
So it's a it's a bit of a fantasy, and I agree with that. And I don't know if Vivek listens to the podcast, but I suspect even if he does, he's not particularly just deterred by historical fact checking. Well, I mean, look, look, you know, those, those are complexities, right? Complexities. <laughs> that's right. Complexities that's right. get in the way of a good campaign, right? That's right. So let me probe a little more on this, though. You mentioned earlier that the, the Moscow and Beijing have reserved areas of disagreement. I like the way you put that. So there are fewer frictions. But there are areas of disagreement. And I wonder if you could uh, elaborate on those. I, I spent a summer in, Mo- in Ulaanbaatar a few years ago. You spent a lot of time with Mongolia. You can see those differences vividly when you're in Mongolia. Well, Mongolia was actually a great surprise for me. I was there this summer, this past summer, and I spent the time working with a Mongolian colleague interviewing Mongolian policymakers about their relationship with Russia and China. We actually had an article in Foreign Affairs about it a couple of months ago. And Mongolia is an interesting, interesting case study because they are so dependent on both Russia and China Despite being, by the way, they're evolving, they're a democratic country, and the Russians and the Chinese have not really tried to invade them or overthrow democracy in Mongolia. Thanks goodness, thanks goodness. But they're very, very much dependent. But the question is, is there friction between Russia and China in Mongolia? And I would say... It's not as much as there used to be because the Russians used to be really worried about their economic interests in Mongolia, in particular, you know, losing certain assets that they had there to Chinese influence, etc. I haven't seen it so much this time around. It seems that if there are frictions in Mongolia, they're able to somehow smooth them and work together. And uh, the Mongolians, of course, themselves are hoping for a very productive and close relationship between Russia and China because they're hoping for a pipeline to be built through Mongolia, power of Siberia too, which is not being built, by the way. And here we come to friction. So here's an example. Power of Siberia 2. Power of Siberia 1 took years to negotiate, took personal, a personal intervention by Putin to get it finally across the finishing line. Uh, some analysts say it's actually not, it's a bad deal for Russia. Russia is not getting enough money out of this. And that's maybe right. Since obviously since the invasion of Ukraine, the Russians have been trying to build another pipeline, which would strategically be very, very important for them because they want to redirect some of the gas from Western Siberia and from Yamal over to China, some of the gas that they have lost uh, by losing Nord Stream and, and, and so on and so forth. And so the Russians have been trying to sell this pipeline to the Chinese because you have to have a long-term contract, otherwise you're not going to be able to build the pipeline. And the Chinese are not giving it. So uh, Jude referred recently when, when Xi Jinping went to Moscow, I think it was in March of last year, when he's, you know, I was watching this summit and I was thinking, you know, will power of Siberia to materialize from that. Nothing. Recently, Putin went to the BRI summit. He was there in Beijing. And again, you know, I was watching this very closely, hoping, okay, is there going to be a breakthrough on on power of Siberia too? Because that would show that the Chinese are helping bail Russia out. And again, there was no agreement. Why is that? Because the Chinese are in position to drive the hard bargain in economic relations with Russia. And they're doing this. They're doing it. Uh, So that is where you sort of come into this slightly uh, murky area of of the economic relationship where the Russians are clearly not happy with some of the aspects of the relationship, but they have very limited leverage and very few opportunities to change anything simply because they've cut themselves off from Europe and now they're so dependent on China. I agree with you on Mongolia. They certainly aren't looking for 
friction between Moscow and Beijing. What I felt when I was there was an anxiety about the shifting balance of power away from Russia and towards China, which is a problem for Mongolia, ultimately. The Sino-Soviet split was, as you pointed out, about Mao's personal (laughs) frustration with Moscow. It was about the military fights in the Amur River and raw power. It was also about ideology. And I wonder if maybe that scenario of weakness in this relationship, the Chinese can't help themselves. You know, Chinese textbooks and propaganda still describes the Russian Far East as part of the Qing Empire. The population of the Russian Far East is in decline, I understand. You know, at some level is Chinese hubris, the same stuff that puts China at odds with Korea and, of course, India and Vietnam. This greater China, almost irredentist education campaign, is that something that could clash with Moscow or is Moscow just in a place where it's going to keep setting these differences aside and just deal with it? So this is actually an interesting case study as well for trying to understand where the Sino-Russian relationship is in the moment. I mean, generally, historically, there, of course, has been a concern uh, in Moscow about uh, potential demographic threat from China, you know, immigration in the Far East and and so on. I think uh, it hasn't really played out in that sort of way. Why it hasn't? For the obvious reason that, you know, the, the standard of living is actually higher now, probably in Dombey, compared to the Russian Far East. And uh, people just don't want to go there. Neither the entrepreneurs, Chinese entrepreneurs, who would rather invest somewhere in, in more predictable environments, nor even the Chinese workers, although there has been some migration, but after the pandemic, it sort of stopped, uh, petered out. And I don't see that demographic threat, at least now, as a real, real serious spoiler to the relationship. But of course, there's this other historical aspect about unequal treaties, that the Tsarist Empire, basically, by which the Tsarist Empire took away large tracts of territory from then Qing Empire, including Mongolia, by the way, you know, Mount Zedong was very keen about returning Mongolia to China, raised that repeatedly with the Soviet leadership only to be rebuffed. Deng Xiaoping lamented this question in in his meetings with Gorbachev, saying, oh, you know, we lost Mongolia, how terrible that is. But they were able to basically close this question. And we haven't seen them raising this in, in any kind of direct way, except, of course, some of those propaganda narratives. And one, one, here's an interesting puzzling fact. Russia and China have signed a treaty about the border. They have not only signed a treaty, but they've actually demarcated the border. So in this sense, there is no unresolved, there are no unresolved border issues between them like there were in 1969 when those clashes took place along the Usuri River that you referred to and then also in, in Xinjiang. So they don't have, you know, they have documents, they have trees, everything is very clearly spelled out, et cetera. And one of, this is one of the early achievements of the Putin of Putin's early administration. So that goes back to 2004, 2005, some of those agreements. But we have this interesting practice in China. So recently there was a, something in the news about the Chinese claiming a part of the island that is next to Khabarovsk as a Chinese territory although it was divided by the agreements officially, right? I checked it out. I thought, okay, well, okay, is, one of, is it a real thing or is it fake news? And I went to Heilongjiang government website, downloaded their official maps, and lo and behold, the whole island is marked as Chinese territory and not divided. I mean, we're not talking about some massive amount of territory. It's actually a fairly small island. 
anyway, as the Chinese claim it, despite the fact that they've signed agreement that actually, and they separate and officially their Russian Chinese border guards there, there, there's no conflict there. But on maps, they do that. They claim this. I cannot explain this. Why are they doing this? And what does it, you know, is it a, by accident? This kind of things can happen by accident, not in China, surely. But what is the purpose in this case? Is it to just kind of remind the Russians then, yeah, we have this and we could raise this? But it's interesting, the Russians have been very quiet about it. So the Russians know that, and I, I assume that in through diplomatic channels, they've made their representations about the maps. But we haven't seen them talking about this in public. And this is for the reason that the Russians are very, very keen not to foil the relationship with China and not to create frictions in the relationship. And I think the Chinese actually share this. They, they know that any kind of frictions in this relationship can and will be exploited by the West. So it's not in their joint interests to, to create frictions. But I still can't explain why the Chinese are doing this. These kind of historical claims are big reasons why relations with Korea, for example, are in the tank. So I suppose one can only hope, but I, I hear you that the that the Russia card against China is a fantasy. Sergey, thus far we've elided talking about the war in Ukraine, I think for the reason of orienting the China-Russia relationship beyond simply events that began in February 2022. We can't not talk about this because it's so important for the relationship today. I'd like to ask you... If we rewind back to February 4th, 2022, I think a lot has been made about the statement of the No Limits Partnership. And now, of course, almost every article somewhere has a a snide remark about, I guess the relationship has limits after all. Although I found the statement important in its own right, even if it wasn't diagnostically accurate to say that there are technically no limits in the partnership. It is still striking that Xi Jinping saw it in his interest to make such a bold declaration. When you look back at that moment in time in February 4th, 2022, what role do you think that meeting played in Vladimir Putin's calculations? One part of this is the what did Xi Jinping know and when did he know it? Did he have any indication that Putin was about to launch an invasion? If so, what did he think the outcome was going to be? If he didn't know, was he failed by his intelligence services or backstabbed by Putin? If we could just go back to that meeting, what do you think was in the Chinese leadership and in Putin's head about what was being agreed at that February 4th meeting? There are multiple issues here that are interesting. Let's sort of take them one by one. The question of whether Putin informed Xi Jinping, I'm not convinced. I think he did not. In fact, there's a broad consensus among Russia and China watchers that there was no agreement between them or even particularly detailed discussion. And the reason for that is for all the closeness of this relationship, it's not that close. In fact, Putin did not even inform some of his own officials, uh, fairly high ranking, about the invasion. There's also evidence that he wasn't exactly sure himself that he was not, you know, he was obviously building up an army and there was intelligence, but it seems that he made the decision to invade actually at a fairly late stage, although he was considering it. It's more complicated. I don't think that he went there to get 
Xi Jinping's backing for the invasion or that Xi Jinping backed the invasion. There's no doubt in my mind that it came as a big surprise to Beijing, despite the fact that the Americans were effectively telling even the Chinese about this, that the intelligence was pretty clear about what was going to happen. But, you know, if you think about whether how important this was for Putin in the broader context, obviously, it was important to be perceived to have this close relationship with China. The analogy to this, and this is very interesting, is um, Khrushchev's 1958 visit to Beijing back in uh, at the time where Mao Zedong was considering the second Taiwan Straits crisis. Uh, he did not tell Khrushchev that there he was going to bombard those islands. Remember Jinmen and Matsu's the famous you know famous confrontation, but. They issued a communique that suggested that to the world that, you know, the Soviet Union was on China's side. So in this case, having this statement, the joint statement that was so unprecedented in the, in the language that was being used, I think was actually gave Putin a degree of confidence that he had China's support in broad terms. And that, of course, that support played out quite well in later months uh, when uh, the West imposed economic sanctions on Russia and China was where Putin turned. And in fact, today we know that much of Russia's trade has been reoriented towards China. Russia is selling its oil to China, it's selling its gas to China, and it's getting absolutely crucial technologies for its ongoing war effort just to keep the standard of life at the appropriate level. So China has been very important to Putin for that reason in broad terms. That is not to say that Putin depended on China to either support him or not, because I think he did retain a certain strategic autonomy here to make those kinds of decisions about invading Ukraine. I don't think he consulted necessarily or needed you know, Xi Jinping's approval for that. I think he would see Russia as an autonomous strategic actor. My sense is from the Chinese side, Obviously, the Xi administration has made it very clear that there's going to be no publicly perceivable daylight between the Chinese and the Russians. It seems to me it's a variation of President Biden's strategy about with Bibi Netanyahu. It's the sort of hug him close and that's the way you're going to have some degree of leverage over him. If you're thinking, if you're sitting in Zhongnanhai today and you're looking at the state of the war in Ukraine, what do you think Beijing's outlook on this is? My sense, you talked about the BRI forum. I would imagine if I was a fly on the wall of that small bilateral meeting, that the two leaders would have come to the conclusion that it could be a lot worse. And that basically, if Russia can hold out, it can perpetuate a stalemate for another year or so. Some things are starting to break in US politics both in terms of congressional support, but also an upcoming presidential election that may give new options. Do you think Beijing has more patience and endurance, or do you think that the Chinese leadership is starting to get frustrated with how long this conflict has worn on? So I think you're quite right. I think the Chinese have been basically supportive of, of this whole war effort, but they also have their concerns. They are concerned about the possible escalation. They don't want escalation. That's very clear. They're also concerned about their economic interests. And we have seen them playing it pretty smartly with the Germans and the French in Europe to try to break up this united front directed against China as they perceive it. And at the same time, they have been very careful not to be seen too openly supporting Russia in a ways that will bring secondary sanctions 
from the United States and undermine China's economic interest. But fundamentally, I mean, if you put yourself in the in Xi Jinping's shoes, do you want Putin to lose this war? That would be strategically problematic for China because of, of the consequences of this, right? The uh, bullet was punished and China's, and for, for, for better or worse, Russia is basically China's main partner. Who else is out there that is uh, of sufficient weight and importance that is basically aligned with China in this kind of way? Was it North, you know, is it North Korea? North Korea doesn't matter. You know, is it Iran? Well, Iran is a different player altogether. So Russia is really, really important and you don't want your main partner to lose at the same time. You don't want the conflict to escalate. Uh, but I think what the Chinese are interested in, and that is, I think, explains their position with uh and peace proposals, so-called peace proposals and mediation efforts, etc., is to have this conflict brought to, to have it brought to some kind of a stalemate or a freeze of some kind, uh, because what this will do is Russia will still be undefeated, but at the same time, Russia's options in the West will be extremely limited for as long as a freeze continues or this kind of, you know, bad relationship with Russia in the West continues. And that benefits China because it gives China all the leverage. So the Chinese would be very happy to be in this kind of position. I think that is where they are. But here's an interesting thing. And this is probably also related to Ukraine. You, men you mentioned the partnership without limits. We know, of course, that it was used in the February 4th statement, but it has kind of fallen by the wayside. They don't use that anymore. And uh, one question that I ask myself is, why has this disappeared? Is that related to Ukraine? And, and is that something that indicates that China is not happy about certain aspects, including, for example, Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons and, 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 and so on? So this really striking Sino-Russian alignment is not happening in a vacuum, of course. And it has come with costs, I think, for both Moscow and Beijing in terms of their relations with other key countries. For Russia, it has probably done damage, at least in a long-term sense, for relations with India. It has definitely done damage with Japan. For Beijing, it has done serious damage with respect to Europe. The IP4, the Japanese, Korean, Australian, New Zealand leaders participating in the NATO summit is a real manifestation of how the Sino-Soviet alignment is propelling the Quad, Asia-Pacific allies, connections to NATO and all the rest. How do you explain this from a Moscow-Beijing perspective? Do you think Xi and Putin are surprised? Do you think they are just looking at this and saying, see, we told you, the U.S. global hegemony is as big a threat as we said? Do you think they're rightly confident? Do you think they're overly confident? How did they assess this going into the No Limits Partnership? And, and how do you think they assess it now? The slide towards conflict in this Sino-American relationship, of course, predates Putin's invasion of Ukraine, his most recent invasion of Ukraine. So uh, I think that's a more long-term proposition, something that has been happening and, and will probably go on for a, for a long period of time for reasons that have really little to do with Russia. Has Beijing brought it upon itself? Well, yes, in many ways, although there's also it takes two hands to clap. And I think the situation is, is pretty complicated. 
in terms of the driving forces of the Sino-American conflict, Sino-American confrontation? I mean, are these two countries sliding towards another Cold War? Is that what is happening? Are they already in the Cold War of some kind? And if they are, then it is understandable that America's allies and partners in the region are apprehensive and are trying, well, some of them were trying to hedge. Some of them are now realizing, including, of course, the Japanese, that they have to take a tougher line on China for reasons of their own, of course. They've also had issues with China for a long time. But you do almost see a recreation of some kind of a Cold War bipolar order, not entirely the same way, because we do, you know, there are other players that just don't fit into this, right? India, Brazil, and others. It's not very clear where they stand in some of those things. But for example, Japan, you know, Japan is finding itself increasingly in the in the confrontation relationship with both uh, China and Russia, although we know that the Japanese, certainly under Abu Shantaro, were trying to improve relations, were trying to finally solve the territorial issue. Well, that eluded them, of course. And so there are some missed opportunities there, perhaps in relationship with Russia, but I don't some hard for harder for me to judge about the Sino-Japanese relationship. Now, as for Korea, you mentioned Korea. I mean, Korea is an interesting case because Russia and South Korea have had a very close economic relationship uh, since the 1990s, since indeed, since 1988, when uh, Roti Wu at that time launched North Politik. Now, when Roti Wu launched North Politik, his reason for doing so was to get to Pyongyang by means of Moscow. But then the relationship between Russia and South Korea just blossomed for economic reasons. And North Korea actually lost all significance for Moscow. But what have we seen recently? We have seen Russia trying to rebuild relationship with North Korea. Korea, a very, very close relationship. I mean, North Korea actually sending arms to Russia to fight in Ukraine and so on and so forth. And when I look at this, you know, you think, this is crazy. Why are the Russians doing that? Don't they realize that South Korea is so much more important to them economically, et cetera, than North Korea? And I think it's, you know, this is all part of the logic of confrontation. Once the confrontation starts developing, then it's very difficult then to maintain this common ground and the more reasonable policies. So we have seen conflicts developed in between Russia and uh, South Korea over over various issues. Yeah. So what does that remind you of? To me, this is this is kind of re- return to the Cold War. Very sad. This is where the historians and you and I have both written a lot of history have to remind themselves history rhymes. It doesn't repeat. That's right. Lots of other factors here. And, you know, I don't want to say that it's all the same as during the Cold War because the Cold War was something else. But uh, there are some parallels. There definitely are. And there's a real, it seems to me, inherent contradiction in what Beijing and Moscow seek. Their alignment is predicated on the idea of a multipolar world. And in that multipolar world, the Europeans are a pole. Perhaps Japan is a pole or India. But the ideological framing of their alignment is very bipolar and is sort of contradicting that, undermining that and that multipolar desire and creating the bipolarity they seek to avoid. I don't know if there's an open debate about this in Moscow or Beijing, but surely there are some scholars who recognize there is an inherent contradiction mm-hmm. in what they're saying they want and what they're creating by what they're doing. I am perplexed by the whole ideological factor here. I wonder what it actually means, because if you read the statement of February 4th, there is some ideology there. And in particular, well, I mean, the interesting thing there is they, the Russians and the Chinese try to substitute the meaning of terms that we would all recognize with their own meaning. So, for example, they talk about themselves as thousand-year-old democracies. 
and you would think, okay, what does that mean? I mean, I mean, come on, you know, what is it? Well, China was a democracy during, I don't know, UN dynasty or something. That's absurd, right? It's preposterous. But they do that. But I don't know what it actually means in term in in global terms. Because if you go back to the fifties, we had the Sino-Soviet ideological alliance, and we knew that this had some kind of a joint canon. There was Marxism-Leninism. There was you know proletarian internationalism, and even all of the, much of that also was some rationalization and much of that was just so much smoke here there we're talking about you know they, they also talk about some kind of ideological vision of the world as, as you know multipolar world etc but to me what this almost seems like is that they're trying what well, the, the real problem with the world is america the real problem is not how the system, except in the sense that the system is headed by the United States and they want to displace the United States, remove it from that position of global leadership, and they want to set up a different system that would have roles for themselves that would be much more where they would play a greater role, a greater, more important role. So this is where I th- what I think this whole confrontation is about, much more about changing the hierarchy or their respecting places in the global hierarchy and less about changing the actual order. Now, we can disagree with this and you can say, well, there are other things there. You know, they're trying to make the world safe for autocracy. They're trying to, what other things are they trying to do? They're trying to prevent democratic contagion. And there's probably some of that as well. But fundamentally, you know, when you ask this question, fundamentally, what is Russia's and China's problem with the international order? I can give you one answer. One answer as historians, we would not, you know, we we don't like one, one you know, this kind of answers because we like multi-causality. But I would say one important thing, and that is they don't like, their main problem with the international order is they don't like their positions in this international order. They don't like the fact that the United States is writing the international order. So this is where we really have to remind ourselves history rhymes and it doesn't repeat. Because to me, that doesn't sound like the Cold War. That sounds like Japan and Germany in the 1930s. That's the scary part. Here's where, it, again, you know, history becomes very complicated because, indeed, Japan and Germany are sometimes mentioned. The First World Wars are, are you know, sometimes mentioned as a worrying precedent for this. But we have to remember that, that China and Russia today are nuclear power, so it's the United States. And that we did not have in the 30s. And you kind of want to hope that this actually introduces a, an element of stability to this relationship, an element of sanity to all players involved in this confrontation. So that even if they push towards confrontation and push towards a very rough game in the intro of, of international politics, something that we have seen unfold in Ukraine, among other places, it, they will know where to stop. At least that's my hope. Yeah, I mean, the, the risks of war are therefore significantly lower and the consequences exponentially higher. I want to ask one last quick question. I was really fascinated by your description of the no uh, limits uh, partnership uh, statement on the eve of the Ukraine invasion, if you flip the coin and look at Taiwan and the election in Taiwan in January, where I'm sure, Jude, you're hearing from Chinese interlocutors as I am, an expectation that if Lai Jing does, the president is elected, if the DPP wins, China will do a, a major military demonstration. So it's a dangerous period. If we have an escalation in Taiwan, does Moscow sort of do what Beijing did with Ukraine? 
So Moscow is definitely interested in an escalation in Taiwan. There's no doubt about this. They are interested for purely utilitarian reasons, self-serving reasons, for the same reason that they're interested in an escalation in the Middle East. Contained escalation, you know, not something absolutely horrible, but as long as the West is drawn to it and its attention is distracted, this is best for Russia for its goals in Ukraine. So if you put yourself in, in, in Putin's shoes or Moscow's shoes, you would see why they would be happy about other conflicts occurring that would draw the United States in particular. Taiwan here is an important example. But, you know, would we expect the Russians to do something about it? I mean, they'll obviously support China rhetorically. There is no doubt about that. They will. They have already been supporting China rhetorically, but they won't do anything else beyond that. But even though even that kind of rhetorical support is important for China, this is good for them because they can, they can count on, on Russia to be reliable kind of rear area, so to speak, for them. But they won't go out of their way to do much about it. And the Chinese will accept this. And this is where the contrast between their relationship now and their relationship in the 50s is so striking. I'll give you one example. In the 1950s, in 1959 specifically, China and India had a border skirmish, as we know, and the Russians took, or the Soviets at that time, took a neutral position on this, saying, well, you know, we're so sorry that our friends and brothers uh, in India and China are fighting with one another. Can't you stop? And the Chinese were outraged by this because they saw this as a betrayal of the Soviet Union's obligations as an ally. And they were absolutely right. Of course, it was a kind of a betrayal of Soviet ob- obligations. But we don't have a military alliance today. So if the Chinese get themselves into military conflict with the United States over Taiwan, the Russians will say, okay, good luck, good luck, but they're not going to to do much about it, nor are the Chinese doing all that much about Ukraine, except, of course, for helping Russia economically, and that is important, and yeah, of course, we have to keep talking about this, but we don't see Chinese troops fighting in Ukraine, I mean, that is, uh, uh, and this is not on the cards. We don't live in the 30s, we don't live in the 50s, but we definitely live in interesting times, and Sergey, you've really illuminated the times we're in and we're going to have to have you back because this is uh this is uh, there's no limits to how much we can talk about this no limit relationship <laughs> thank you mike and thank you Jude, for having me for more on strategy and the asia program's work visit the csis website at csis.org and click on the asia program page and for more on the u.s studies center in sydney please visit ussc.edu.au